if you say, what are the biggest problems I need to solve? Okay. And you start with, oh, is it targeting or is it loyalty or what is it? Right. And then you're saying, okay, what are the kind of the KPIs that are really important? Well, what's the data that I need um, within it? And then you get to last of all, the technology that provides the data that provides the the answer to the biggest questions that you have as a marketeer. Whereas I think too many people start at, at the wrong place. Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer centric. But to be truly customer centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Marketing organizations are under significant pressure today to help drive growth for their companies and also build sustainable brands and do that in the context of increasing complexity. To be effective, you have to be firing on all four cylinders. To talk about these challenges, I sat down with Simon Francis, Executive Chairman of Flock & Associates. Simon has extensive experience in marketing transformation. Over his career, he has run creative, media, digital, branded content, and has also been CEO of EMEA for Saatchi and & Saatchi and Aegis Media. He's also held senior positions at OMD, Leo Burnett, Mindshare, and Zenith Optimedia. In 2013, Simon founded Flock & Associates to help marketers through transformation on many different levels. Over the last decade, Flock has worked with some of the biggest global brands, including Amazon, Ford, Shell, Toyota, McDonald's, Asda, and many more. Simon and I covered four big areas marketers need to address when driving change, people, processes, partnerships, and procurement. One of the things I like about how Simon approaches transformation and his wise advice is to be clear about the problem you're trying to solve and what kind of customer experience you're wanting to see as an outcome of any transformation work. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Hello, Simon, and welcome to the program, my friend. It's so good to have a Brit join us from London. How's the weather in London today? Is the sun shining? Well, yes, it is. The sun is shining uh, both physically and sort of more emotionally, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's been a good day. Well, after four years in the UK, I didn't realize until I got there how uh, the weather is almost every part of every conversation, right? So uh, it's only fitting that we start, we start this with the weather. Yeah, absolutely right. But then you were up north where the weather's a bit more extreme. So uh, down south is always sunny. Yeah, uh, that's why we tended to go to London on the weekends. Outside, of, there was only so much sheep and rock walls we could look at. Uh that far north. <laughs> um, so let's let's get started. Uh, you've been helping big brands and retailers transform their marketing organizations at Flock for now 10 years. So first of all, congrats on your entrepreneurial journey. And before we start talking about marketing and transformation, uh, take me back to that moment 10 years ago when you started this journey. What were you thinking and feeling at the time? And did you envision it looking like it does today? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, 
the reason why I set the business up was, you know, there's just the world was getting much more complicated. There's the what of marketing and the how of marketing. The what of marketing is, you know, what's my insight? What's my idea? What's my media strategy? And that's hard, but it hadn't got any harder. Uh, the how of marketing had got just incredibly harder, you know. How do I get the right people? How do I organize them? How do I get everyone to work together? How do I get the right agencies and stuff? And so I saw an opportunity in that 10 years ago. And, and surprisingly, um, sort of uh, the business plans almost kind of worked out. You know, as yeah. you see, you rub these things, you never really know. But it's been a privilege to work with some great brands and great people to genuinely transform their marketing. And that's uh, what Flock Associates, you know, my company does. Well, you're obviously doing something right. 95% of startups fail after the first year. So you've cut through all of those barriers. And uh, it's been quite impressive to watch you build this uh, over the last 10. Now, I'm curious as to what you're seeing today in terms of the challenges marketers face as compared to what you saw in the past when you were starting out 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously some key sort of just general business trends that, that follow through, you know, the globalization, um, the drive of technology transforming sort of things. I think they're all well sort of understood. I think really for marketeers and the CMO is their changing role in the board has, um, has been a big uh, difference. I've got to be honest. I say that the uh, level of talent in the industry as a whole, both on the advertiser and on the agency side, um has changed and i'm afraid I, I don't see it as um uh for the better mm. um so, so there's some of the sort of macro trends that you would see and then the the, the ones that of course you talk about you know massive changes through um both social and influencers sort of marketing and now the onrushing wave of um um sort of retail sort yeah. of media uh, interspersed with economic challenges, COVID, and, and the, the rest of them uh, along the way. So never a dull moment. Never a dull moment, for sure. You know, I hear a lot of questions in the industry still around things like, what's the best way to organize or deal with X, Y, or Z? So for example, you know, how much should we be doing performance marketing versus brand marketing? Or where should retail media networks, network accountability sit in the organization? Or is it in-housing better than partnering? Uh, I don't know why, but we tend to want to look for those pat answers. But my experience has been, it depends. It depends on culture, categories you're competing in, your heritage. Um, and I imagine the work you guys do is a more of an alchemist or a forensic scientist to try to figure out what's best for each company versus pure consultant. I mean, do you feel like it? there is these pat answers? It's kind of a softball question, but I mean... It feels no. like there's a lot of variables that, and yet we want to find uh, the single best answer for everybody. Yeah, you know, I'll be blunt about it. There are lots of other sorts of consultancies who maybe don't understand marketing as well, who say, here's a model, right? You've got to in-house or you've got to in-house media or you've got to do a retail network or, you know, mm -hmm. and they have these models that they tout around and they drop on any company any culture, any style of organization. Ours, because we are marketeers, consulting to marketeers, we believe in the power of the consumer. So we'll look at what does the consumer need in three years' time? You know, what do they need of this brand? What do they need from this sort of business? And then we uh, figure out where the company is now and then fill the gaps. And quite often that will be, okay, what skills 
are required first and foremost, right? How are you going to effectively organize those um, skills? How are you going to sort of train and nurture those skills? What are the processes that are going to make those teams uh, efficient and effective? And that includes the power of the data and the technology that they would need. And often what some other consultancies forget is the agency resources. You know, they add huge value to marketing, always have, always will do. Their role is changing. But what is the role of the agencies? So so we start from a very purist stance, really, which is, is to organize marketing around the needs of the consumer um, rather than against a pat answer or an off-the-peg model or, you know, something that serves our business or a technology that we've got to sell. That's not the way we work. Well, I know from my own experience, I think when I got into ASDA in 2016 and trying to create a vision and move things forward, um, one of the pieces of data I had was about 30. If you look at the total ecosystem of marketing that we were doing, probably only 30% of the total FTEs were you know, inside the company. And so to take on change without really understanding the total ecosystem of external partners is uh it's too limiting because you're it would it wouldn't work yeah. and i think probably the best decision we made back then was to uh, engage you guys to come in and and help sort it out and get get our in-house uh in order first before we started looking at agencies and, and other partners uh yeah and you, you look at the, your business and what flock does really as i've experienced it and how you talk about it under four pillars and i want to walk through those pillars and talk about that. And it's people, partners, procurement, and process. And it seems like all four of those are going through a lot of change and uh, have some real challenges today. Um, but before I ask about the uh, underneath each one of those four, I found it curious you didn't have digital and technology as a pillar. Is that because it's foundational throughout or uh, it's something you don't look at? No, it's 100% ingrained in every aspect of everything that we do, along with sustainability and diversity and inclusion, right? You, you, you just cannot talk about agencies without talking about technology and data. It doesn't matter what sort of agency uh, it is, technology and data will play uh, a role. As soon as you start talking about processes, you're talking about technology, the workflow tools and the enablement tools that, um, you know, power um, processes. But equally, um, sustainability, diversity, and inclusion runs through every part of our work, whether it's about people, whether it's about partners, whether it's about procurement. It's such a fundamental underpinning from all of our work. So we don't call it out as a separate service because we don't really believe in it being siloed from the other uh, component parts of our business. And most oftentimes, we have all four of those um, services working together as one. Uh, we only broke them out as four to make us easy to shop. Simply, yep. you know, people know, oh, you do marketing capabilities and people. So, you know, we call it out. When you look at people, let's start there um, in the right roles, getting people in the right roles. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the culture of the company you're working with affects that because culture is so important. But how do you get into the cultural element in addition to looking at job specs and who should be sitting where? Yeah. Culture trumps all. Not, I mean, that's a bland statement, but but pretty much, right? I could assemble the most talented bunch of people uh, in my organization, um, but without a culture that's inclusive, that can get the best of them, you know, that genuinely puts excellence at, at the fore, uh, I wouldn't have a very good business, right? 
Right. Um, so, so before anyone, I mean, again, some people rush to org design or they rush to sort of job descriptions and things. And it, it, once you've defined your vision for marketing, the culture is a key point. So we worked with major advertiser, um, over 12,000 marketeers globally, and they came to us to write, uh, rewrite all of their global processes to make them more sort of agile. And we did our initial interviews and, you know, we've got a, a skills survey that we use, which picks up on culture as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we deployed these and we just came back. It's like, we can, we can write down a process. We can show it and we can train it into the organization, but your culture's wrong to be able to, for you to move, you know, it, with agility, you know, there's a fear culture here. There's a blame culture here. Uh, wow. we have to address this. So we were able to deploy, uh, both face-to-face e-learning uh, facilities and lots of cultural changes. We put the CMO in the middle of the marketing department rather than on eight floors higher. Uh, we changed the meeting room environment. Uh, we banned a certain number of CCs so that people weren't getting copied. We changed the way the email was to be used. We introduced Teams. And then there was a whole bunch of training around uh, risk aversion and failing fast and genuine agility. Um, and the cultural piece landed uh, very well uh, that allowed the process changes that we needed to make uh, to land well. But I don't think it would have worked in an organization of that scale without the cultural shift that needed to be made. Right. So, uh, again, we understand marketing. It, it's different from some other departments in organizations. Culture applies to every department. Yeah, but um, there's a strong sense of different types of marketing culture that that need to be recognized and and sometimes tweaked and enhanced. Yeah, good for you. I love that. I think that's really an important piece that you feel inside a company that may not work here the same way because our culture might be slightly different in some way yeah. or another. Another thing that's happening, obviously, in the last couple of years because of retail media networks, when you start looking at people in roles and getting people in the right roles is the lines are getting a bit blurred between a marketing side and, and the commerce side. And are you seeing yourself being pulled into the commercial sides of the house, sales and uh, trade and such, in order to help sort how do these functions work in a much more integrated way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is one of the big sort of three or four topics of the moment, right? And people come to us, as you said earlier, they come to us with a problem like, Either a marketing person comes to us or a salesperson says, hey, we've got to fix sort of, you know, uh, you know, our retail commerce um, sort of offering. Can you come and do org design for us? But that normally means in code is there's a punch up between sales and marketing over who owns shopper and retail right. Um, marketing, right? And they're looking for someone independent to, you know, adjudicate between two often warring uh, factions. And we just start in a very different place, which is what's the customer experience that you're trying to build? You know, you know, what are you trying to offer the consumer? Now let's peel it back and look what skills that you need to deliver against that. Now let's look at what process needs to uh, operate within that and the tech and the data. And then finally, what do you want to do in-house versus out-of-house with the agencies? By the time you've peeled back those different layers, you're almost left with... Um, a clearly defined answer for who should be doing um, sort of what, but driven by the consumer and the consumer experience that you want to create. I'll give an example is, let's just say you might be a retailer and you might want to do um, a lot of retail media, right? 
big mm-hmm. topic. You want to pull in a lot of money. Well, it depends on who has got that handle. If it's the sales guys and they want to try and pull it in and just make a load of money, that's one thing. If it's maybe the marketing side and they want to build a seamless customer experience for the consumer, it might be a completely different thing. So you have to start with what the vision is, what the objectives are and the customer experience and then work it back into the organization. And that'll dictate where some of the, the roles should, should do. But where isn't as important as the skills and the processes irrespective, right? Org design is not as important as having a brilliant process so that people can build these great experiences. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I feel like it's often much better to start with the process and what is it you're trying to accomplish? What's the objective? And then you work your way through that to get to the other side of it. Uh, one of the things I'm hearing in the industry quite a bit, Simon, is the growing complexity of MarTech, ad tech, and how do you help marketers deal with that complexity? It's almost overwhelming. It can be. And if you look at the many different uh, streams of knowledge from customer data platforms and what that might mean all the way through to the MarTech and ad tech, um, do you feel like we're at a point of overwhelm or uh, how, are, how are people coping with the, the demand to well, develop skills in all those areas? Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot, right? I mean, everyone's seen the famous sort of charts of all of the ad and marketing technologies that, that exist, and that is completely overwhelming if you look at it in, in that uh, way. There's no way that either our company or any company could hold expertise across a map and a vista uh, like that, and it's sort of a fool's errand to, to try, Andy, right? But I think you can chunk things down in different ways by not looking at the technology. If you say, what are the biggest problems I need to solve? Okay, and you start yeah. with, oh, is it targeting? Or is it loyalty? Or what is it, right? And then you're saying, okay, what are the kind of the KPIs that are really important? Well, what's the data that I need um, within it? And then you get to, last of all, the technology that provides the data, that provides the, the answer to the biggest questions that you have as a marketeer. Whereas I think too many people start at, at the wrong place. Um, the other thing is I would say is you, you have to be uh, cross-functionally agnostic or independent, by which I mean is if you've only got expertise in media, the answer is always a media piece of technology. If you're you know, a CRM expert, the right. answer is always a new you know, fantastic data warehouse, right, uh, where it is is where I think you have to sit above that so you can find the connections between technologies and build these integrated technology solutions and stacks as opposed to doing it piece by piece, department by department, because you never get a holistic view and it never joins together. Um, so that's just one other thing that we've noticed a, a lot is too many companies um, you know, put budgets in the hands of too many people and then it's trying to like knit spaghetti, right? You just yeah. can't make it all work together at the end of the day. Yeah, I saw a statistic the other day that only 30% of typical MarTech features are actually used of what's available there, which you can look at that one of two ways. One is maybe they should be used and the skills aren't there, or maybe that's all that's needed to achieve the objectives of what the organization is trying to do, right? That, so Yeah, really true. It's a really great point. We've just done a, a huge project for a, a global beauty and cosmetic um, uh, sort of company. And uh, they had two, uh, from memory, I may be wrong, but it's in the right ballpark of 286 different taxonomy fields on their digital asset management um, system. And they were like, wow, we're not, 
we're not really getting much traction. We can't find stuff on the dam. We're not using it right and things like that. And so we had to come up with a new taxonomy that could also fit with their media taxonomy, their PIM taxonomy, and their finance taxonomy so they could work out the ROI on the stuff that they were um, sort of making. I think we got it down to about 35 fields and by able to getting it um, auto-filled and optimized by depending on what you filled in, we were able to, you know, rationalize uh, and improve the uses quite dramatically. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, I've heard the quote, not everything that could be counted should be counted and not everything that counts can be counted. So uh, it's trying to sift through that. So important. Let's go to the second big P pillar, partners. Uh, there's a lot of talk in the industry uh, more recently about the pitch process being broken. Um, I, I've seen that and I've gone through that process. You guys led us through that process, um, but I don't see any change really happening there to do it a different way. Um, how do you think about the overall process of the uh, agency beauty show and showing up and all of the work that goes into that? Yeah. It's a great question, and it is a hot topic, especially amongst the um, the the agencies. I think the first thing is is when someone comes and says we want to pitch, we go why, and then you do the classic Toyota five whys to get back to what the root cause is. And it might be because our sales are flat or something else, and the agency may not be uh, actually the, the problem, or it may be much better to run a get fit exercise and fixes. We did one uh, once before with yourselves than, than discarding the agency and doing a pitch. So that's the first point. The second thing is um, you've got to understand what you're running a pitch for. Are you trying to buy a capability that can do great work or are you trying to get them to do a bit of work that can run at the end of it? And they're two fundamentally different approaches. We believe in the former, not the latter. Mm. And sometimes you get lucky and work comes out that runs and that's fantastic or a media strategy. Mm -hmm. or a PR strategy that, that, that sticks, but that's not ever our intention is to buy the human capability and technical competence of the agency that can do great work. And that leads you down a very different pitch path, Andy. I mean, we talk yeah. about running high humanity pitches. I'd rather put your key account director in a room with you so you can have a one-on-one, -on -one, so you can assess whether you can work with the, the, the lady or the, or the guy. Uh, you can assess their general knowledge and their understanding of your business and your uh, needs and their leadership uh, uh, ability. That's going to be far better for you and for them, and you're going to be able to give better feedback than a PowerPoint warfare and glitzy videos and things like that. So we tend to uh, run high humanity pitches, which are much more intimate than some folk, for sure, and than, than is generally um, uh, the case. Um and we tend to do real deep dives on things like technology and stuff. Screen grabs of technology on PowerPoint doesn't work. We tend to roll up the sleeves, give them live tests, give them budgets to play with. And if we want to test um, an agency's ability to do things quick, we might throw in a last-minute pitch you know, idea just to see how they can think and react and, and, and work to things. So it's much more of a live test of a working relationship than what used to be the siege mentality. Now... I have to say there is a huge amount of the industry that doesn't work in that way. There are some poor procurement people in marketing teams, although marketing procurement's improved dramatically. And there are some pretty average um, pitch consultants who, you know, used to be an account director in 1988 and, you know, are still running pitches in that way, right? I'm just yeah. blunt about it. So, so there is a need for change. We adopt what we think is best. 
Um, but I think there is a lot of frustration, rightly, with the way that they're, they're being run. Yeah, I, I've participated as a client in both of those different approaches. Um, and in the in the first approach of the traditional way of looking at you know, seven, eight agencies or some ungodly number, uh, there, there gets to be a, a blindness that happens where they're the pitch decks look a lot alike and the real information to make a really great choice just isn't there. And then I, we've done it the other way where through the more human approach, and I think if I remember right, um, you guys helped lead that process. And it, it does give you much richer information about how uh, things really work, the real human side of it. And are you going to get along with these people? Do you respect the the approach? And is there real dialogue and a willingness to pitch back, but push back? I always loved a partner that would actually, you know, challenge and and not be afraid of that um, to share a different point of view. I thought that was really rich. Um, you talked about you, you guys talk about procurement, which I think that's an area that is often inside of a of a brand or a retailer uh, can be almost uh, I don't want to say an enemy of the marketing department, right? As you're trying to go through this process, but but I found that uh, the procurement team became my best friend really in, in terms of working with them early inviting them in and helping them understand how fast the marketing world was changing especially looking at what was happening with programmatic and all of the elements with that um the the foundational elements of procurement I, how do you harmonize that so that it's or any suggestions yeah. on how procurement could play a much more collaborative role between marketing and the agency and and everything else you know, we contributed to and support the World Federation of Advertisers Project Spring, which I'd urge any um, sort of forward-thinking marketeer or marketing operations or indeed marketing procurement person um, to look at, which is moving procurement away from a transactionary uh, just cost focus into driving value into organizations. And some of the, you know, best marketing procurement teams that we work with are bringing new initiatives they're looking at what's the outcome of the work not just the cost of it and they're pushing for roi on everything and they're pushing the marketers to be much more disciplined and measured about what they're doing and they're improving the skills of the marketers in topics like briefing and processes and things like that one of our largest probably our two of our five largest um marketing projects general projects started from procurement where there was a great um relationships between marketing procurement and the cmo we were introduced because we do things outside of procurement can fix processes can fix briefing uh, programs can do org design so for one um we were introduced by marketing procurement we created a new marketing operations uh function uh called moms uh, a new production operation um inside marketing called POMS and put in place new technology and things like that. And that was driven by um, marketing procurement in really fantastic partnership with CMO so that the, the marketers wouldn't have got there on their own. They had their head filled with plenty of other things, whereas the independence of marketing procurement um, really made the difference in that instance and, and, and in several of the biggest assignments which we've been involved in. Well, have you also worked with finance? Because I think one of the areas that I found challenging at times is the, uh, you know, helping educate finance on how measurement works and the different KPIs that are there. Um, when I was a CMO at, at Walmart Asta, 
you know, I'd have 20, 30 KPIs to be looking at from how I was doing on brand attribution to cut through to um, salience, all kinds of KPIs. And you start adding the commercial side in with the retail media networks. Uh, it could be really difficult to know, you know, you move one KPI one way and all of a sudden the other KPI goes the other direction, right? So simplifying that world, understanding that world and really um, being able to be choiceful about what does move the needle for you in the right way uh, required a lot of work with the finance director because they're, you know, they're measuring budgets, they're setting budgets, they need to, you know, approve budgets and, and make sense out of that. Have you dipped into the finance side in addition to the procurement side on measurement? Yes, indeed. Um, driven from the marketing side, I've never been employed by a finance director uh, directly yet, so I have to be clear on that. Um, but we've uh, just uh, completed a project in the US. It was a, uh, a large, um, iconic CPG uh, company who had fantastic econometric modeling to show what was happening to their brands. They had all the brand tracking that showed that when you invest, the scores go up and every year their marketing budgets got cut and they were going sort of down. And so as a result, actually, equity and things were um, sort of falling. And uh, we had to go upstairs from the CMO to the CEO to agree a project that was going to look at marketing effectiveness, the skills internally, okay, what was actually happening, and then look across the measures and get them validated independently that they were true, responsible, and that they were forward uh, sort of thinking. And we had to take finance on that journey with us because there was no point in us saying, yes, this effectiveness approach is the best way of measuring brands and stuff, is if the rest of the time finance director couldn't do it. Right. The other thing is I would, uh, I would urge all uh, CMOs or even department heads uh, to think about is uh, how you create budget liquidity because very often budgets are set by department often on an annual basis of uh, often based on a year-on-year -year, um, sort of calculation which gives you no liquidity to be able to react and, and move between departments and shift budgets um, sort of around so not just having the measures to be able to do it but having the facility with finance to either hold budget topside so it can be injected where it's um, sort of uh, sort of left, uh, or the ability to sort of move money between departments um, with uh, the agility that modern marketing needs. Uh, so finance again can can be a great ally, um, but but sometimes you need that independence uh, outside of just the marketing director telling you that the results are great um, to be able to do it, and that takes some winning over. Yeah, it does take some winning over. I know when we brought in market mix modeling uh, for the first time and we had the data and started to do it, uh, finance was a bit skeptical, to be honest. And uh, we kind of did it two steps forward, three steps back to go and re-educate and co really kind of co-create together with finance and procurement and marketing. So that three-legged stool was the only way we could really get there. And then once yeah. we created that collaboration, it really did change the outcome of what yeah. we were able to do by having that. Um, the last and piece, the ability to yeah, go ahead. Now, the ability to best test, Andy, is better yeah. than it's ever been, right? And yet yeah. so few people have got a really rigorous, you know, test and learn um, sort of program with controls and things like that. So one of our large auto clients had 164 tests that they were running on an annual basis, 164 wow. tests to be able to prove um, different uh, types of effectiveness 
not all of them linked to sort of budget, uh, okay, but 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 a lot of them, of course, showed that they were optimizing the budget or that they needed more budget to do different sort of things. And a commitment to that level of rigor, sometimes marketeers don't have, right? Yeah. It feels like more engineering. It feels more science than art. Um, but again, with the ability to measure, testing is your best friend. Yeah, 100%, especially in this dynamic time, which leads me to the last of the P's, the process. Um, when you look at process, and I, I just had this question asked me the other day of when do you uh, pour down and put lay down a repeatable process to roll out? Because you need to scale, right? So you're in a marketing team, whether you're in an agency or a marketer, and you're wanting to uh, create some scale and efficiency, you need to document and have playbooks and be able to uh, run consistent processes. But at the same time, everything's changing all the time. And it's, you know, you want to be innovating. You want to learn something new. As soon as you lay down a process, it can go stale and you can miss out on the innovation. So how do you coach people through that tension, that paradox between innovation and process uh, for efficiency? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, you know, first of all, I'd say that most marketeers think that process is a very dirty word and they don't yep. give it the value that um, that it that it genuinely has. The second is in many organizations, the process isn't someone's full-time job, right? Many companies now have put in place marketing operations teams, but many haven't. Um, and someone really needs to continue to do it. But in direct answer to your question is you build it in, right? You build innovation and creativity in the process and you know when to unprocess. Uh, I'll give you an example that we built for a large auto, um, uh, global auto uh, client, their new uh, annual planning and campaign um, sort of processes. And within that, there's very clear places where you are prescribed to innovate or certain categories of campaign or activity which are innovation led right so you're building it in it's not like you either do the process or you innovate the innovations um sort of built in the other thing there would be exceptions to the process and you have to have a means of dealing with that rather than everyone just calling an exception and no one knowing what to do so um in the old days you would have like what, what i used to call them one of my agencies a red brief a red brief was something where all rules were torn up and you just approached it afresh and, and tackled things in a different way, which might mean you lock yourself away in a house for four days with pizza and beer until you come out with the answer. It might be you take everyone for a run around the park to get to the answer, it might be whatever it might need to be. Um, but you unprocess to be able to solve certain sort of tasks. And I think a lot of marketeers have, you know, forgotten that they come to us saying, oh, we've got to work in agile squads. We've got to do agile marketing, which we happily put in the discipline and the rigor of the standups and the Kanban boards and all of those sort of things. But there are exceptions to that when you need to step outside it and you need to have a means or a way to um, sort of do it. So unprocessing yeah. is as important as processing. Yeah, I stood up two different marketing ops, uh, one at Walmart and one at Asda where there wasn't a marketing ops before. Uh, it was done through traditional project management kind of stuff. And I can tell you, it really was a game changer. But a couple of things I learned through that process is, one, um, if you're going to add a next step, right? So you see a mistake happen, we add another step to the process, right? That's how they get bloated really fast. And so my thing is, you know, if you're going to add something to the process, something needs to come out. 
and try to force a bit of a of a simplicity because they by themselves they will get complex and more so than they need to be. And the second thing is, if you have if you want to have a playbook or a work process defined and and then you put that out there and you call it success for a marketing ops team to have a process, that's not really success. Success should be measured if by asking the question are the customers of this process using it and are they happy with it and does it make their life better until you get to that point just having a playbook is not an outcome that's that's just you know ticking a box to say we have a process for this and a process for that the measurement should be is it effective and does it make my life better yeah 100% and uh, as we say it has to be built for the real world uh with you know and maintained so you're going to have 30% churn, okay, in your yep. team. So just having a playbook means nothing unless you're onboarding people, continually training people on it, adapting it, bringing their knowledge and insight in from the organization. It has to be a live living thing, not some monolithic piece. Uh, and as we say, is the, the ability to know how to short circuit it when you need to is like, you know, one of the ones we've built for a, a large uh, quick service restaurant operated at three different speeds. So, mm. you know, you could go through it really quick, you go through it in a middle wall, or you could go through it a heavy way, depending on what the business demanded at that time. And different pieces are grayed out and different races change and things like that. Um, it, included just, me yeah. tell us, ah, it included me having to tell a CMO that they weren't going to see the work um, mm. uh, for some of these speeds because they just couldn't get across it, you know, to approve everything, right? Which they felt uncomfortable about, but that's what, what the good process necessitated. Yeah, and it, it can work inside across the agency uh, client side too. One of the things that I really encouraged was asking the agency to not bring uh, six or seven ideas in the first look at you know a new campaign, but you know come with the idea that you believe in most, and we'll talk through it. And if we need to go to a second or third idea, then you know. We can, but I prefer to, you know, because you're the agency, you're the expert. And boy, did that did that change things because that change in process allowed them to simplify and have more confidence than just having four or five ideas because in case one fails, right, uh, you, you would have a backup. And, and I just think it, it took it created a lot more efficiency for both sides. Um, let yeah, me talk you make a great yeah, point about the agencies, Andy, I, I think. Yeah. Getting the agencies to match a client's process is really important. There's no point having a client process, but then the agency goes off and does something else and they can't work to the same level of agility or they're not synchronized into those races and those ways. So again, for the large auto, when we did uh, the train, the trainers was a hundred people, everyone uh, in Detroit um, for a train, the trainers sort of session of which half were agencies and half were uh, the marketeers to make sure that the whole marketing machine moved at the same speed and the same pace with the same agility, as opposed to, you know, different speeds and different angles. Yeah. Yeah. That's so critical. hundred percent agree. Uh, we have a lot of students we work with, uh, with the university of Arkansas and, uh, other places. I'd love to hear your thoughts on career advice to, uh, graduates going into the workforce, how, how do you uh, how do how does should they think about this complex, uh, multivariate space and what they should be thinking about to build a career? What would you give? What kind of advice would you give them today? It's funny. I did a talk at uh, the University of Exeter in the UK uh, the other day uh, to some uh, students about a similar topic, and I said, first of all, is you know, 
find out um, about all of the different um, disciplines that exist within uh, sort of marketing and look at your own sort of skill sets um, very, very closely because you could be a real numbers person and succeed brilliantly in, in, in marketing. You could be a creative, flair-driven person, succeed in marketing because it's such a broad church of um, sort of skills. But one, know yourself very well. And the other is know the context that you like to work. If you're a sports nut and you're a, yeah, let's be honest, a real geeky, nerdy data guy. Yeah. Look at that. There's so many fantastic opportunities in that sort of field. Why go and do a grad scheme, you know, and a general CPG? So I'd aim for the sweet spot of where you think you're going to succeed uh, ultimately and in the right place. The second thing is, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. which is um, to learn broadly and deeply. There's a lot of great material to read um, and to access and to gen up with before you go for an interview or before you apply for a role or think about it. Just really put in the spade work to, to do that. It's not going to find you. The last point I would talk about is um, pick your boss. Mm. Okay, Go find the people on LinkedIn that are doing things, that are shaking things in the sector that you've chosen engage with them, write, write to them, try and find someone that, that is doing the best um, sort of work, hustle. I love that. I'd also add to that, you know, once you do make a choice and you've entered, there's no, there is no perfect job. So I would relax on that pressure point. And I would also give myself at least a year, personally, I say two years, to not look up and second guess uh, because yeah. you're going to go through some hard stuff and that's part of the learning. And it's easy today to say, yeah, I don't like, I'm not passionate about this. I'm going to give up, you know, change careers, do whatever. But some of the best learning happens when you're going through the hard things that yeah. you, you know, have to learn and go through. So yeah, just and give yourself some it's time. Still the most, it's still the most invigorating um, sort of thing. You know, not everyone does a marketing degree and that's what makes marketing fantastic you'll meet geographers you'll meet scientists sports scientists creatives it's a melting pot of skills and disciplines and it's incredibly meritocratic you're not waiting for your next exam you don't have to go through 10 layers if you're good you'll fly and you can get to the level that you've got to or possibly even um you know my own lower more humble uh role in the world but you can certainly achieve um you know, if, if you apply yourself and you've got the right skills and you can work as a team fantastically, I mean, marketing is still, as I think a lot of people that have gone into tech companies are now finding out, you know, there's a real benefit to being in uh, in the department of, a, you know, a leading company in, in, in marketing. I also think that we do not have in the industry today an abundance of leaders. There's It feels like there's a leadership deficit and uh, just because of how things have grown. And it's an opportunity to really apply yourself. And if you do have ambition to be a senior leader um, and you put the work in, it's not like we've got too many leaders. It's a fantastic observation, I think, uh, for many of the people who may be listening to this who are mid-ranking marketers, learn how to lead. Uh, it doesn't tend to be taught in marketing as it maybe is in some other functions. Uh, you don't just emerge as a leader um, and there's a difference between being a leader and having followers so build your followership work out how you can get followers uh, because that's the sort of discipline that you are in in marketing it's not command and control if you don't have followers then you're doomed in marketing i would yeah. say hierarchy will not save you no you get sponsors that change and and 
Uh, I think the only one of the only reasons um, I, I lasted four years in the CMO job at, at ASDA was the uh, trying to build networks and relationships uh, at the leadership level because you do have to work in a world of influence. You have to work with merchants and you have to work with operations. You work, work well with your agency partners and you know, finding people that have those leadership skills that work through influence, as you mentioned, uh, is not easy to find sometimes. And I think it, it makes a wide open space for those that want to advance a career. This is a great place to be. Yeah, very, very, very true. Um, Simon, as you look out the next couple of years, as we wrap this up, what do you see is uh, excites you and what gives you hope as you look in this very VUCA complicated world? Yeah, there's so much. I'm I'm tremendously excited about the role of marketing with regards to sustainability. Uh, and when I mean sustainability, I mean it in the broadest sense of the word. I don't just mean like, you know, carbon. Hmm. I'm talking about biodiversity. I'm talking about diversity and inclusivity. I'm talking about the power of brands to shape um, humanity. And 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 I think marketing's got so much more to play than perhaps manufacturing or production and some of those other areas where a lot of these conversations have started actually and i think uh, as soon as people really wake up to the power of marketing to shape uh, society and the world at large i think that's going to be a fantastic thing so i'm tremendously excited about that um i'm i'm someone who's tremendously excited about um artificial intelligence and and um the ability to to harness it for good and um, the ability to use it in a, in a smart way. I know a lot of people are terrified that it's going to put you know, art directors out of work or media strategists out of work or that everything is going to get done down and the answer is all going to be the same because it's run through chat GPT. I think it's utter hogwash, right? Um, I just think it's they're going to be the smart leaders that really look at it and say, how can it help me solve these critical problems, right? look at the people, the organization, the agency resources, the technology that they're going to need to put in place to harness the power of AI and then test and test and test and lay out these these programs. They're going to win big because uh, they're the ones who's just put their fingers in their ears. It's a bad place to be over the next few years, I think. So, no. so yeah, uh, lots of things with those. And then lastly, the power of creativity. I feel is we've had a decade of data and tech and whilst I've just talked about AI, that's a servant to creativity, not a replacement for it. So I'm excited a bit of about uh, creative uh, renaissance. As brands have to find growth, um, creativity is the force that gives it creativity and innovation. So th th three things really, Andy, I'd, I'd say, which which always excite me, but for those specifically at the moment. Well, it's interesting. There's probably a lot of data to back up the importance of creativity if you look at the cookie apocalypse that may be coming and contextual being more important, you know, understanding how message works uh, and creativity. It, it feels like it's taken a bit of a backseat to the performance marketing conversations over the last couple of years. And I, I, I'm with you on that. I think uh, for that reason alone, uh, we need to put more energy into the creative side of it. So, hey, Simon, thank you so much for taking this time out of your day and, and spending it with me on these very important topics. Uh, I've covered a lot in the space of retail media networks and the changes that are that are happening in that space. But this is the first we could sit down and talk about, you know, what's important in changing, you know, a, an organization inside to prepare for those kind of changes or to maximize them. I think you've done a good job of outlining uh, how you have to look at people, how you have to look at the process, the partners, and the procurement in a holistic way. 
and I'm not trying to flog flock uh, per se, but I, I think anybody that thinks that way uh, as a as a client or a, a brand marketer is going to find much more success than taking it more one dimensionally as an organizational design problem alone. So thank you for uh, spending that time and bringing that clarity. For those listening, we'll put in the show notes how you can get in touch with with uh, Simon and uh, connect up with him and find out more about what he's doing. Andy, thanks so much for your time and inviting me. And uh, thank you to anyone who's listened to the end. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Wilton College original production. 